Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. Today, we're talking a movie from 2022, available on Prime Video, a Prime original, 13 Lives. 13 Lives. That's a good one. And that was a reference to our British cast. Viggo Mortensen, however, not British. Nope. And he actually acted in this one. It's weird to say because he affected a British accent for uh, Lord of the Rings, but I never considered him like a immersive actor kind of guy. He also did his Russian accent for the Russian gangster movie. What was it called? Uh, Eastern Promises. That's the one. <laughs> Like, he can do accents, but I felt like he actually acted. Colin Farrell, likewise, that wasn't his accent here. They both modeled him very closely on the two actual guys that they portrayed. And I'm not sure how necessary that was. But, I mean, I admire your commitment. Let's do it. Because certainly the filming wasn't harrowing. (laughs) I'm detecting sarcasm? Yeah, man. The poster has the boys... The in silhouette, it's like a cross section of the cave, so you can see the t- the topography, and it's the kids standing on a dry ledge, and then there it, the path submerges, and you can see a diver in the water. Like, oh, there's a rock in the way, but otherwise the waterway is open and wide, it's pristine blue, and it's all calm. Yeah. And I was like, what the, what's the problem? You guys can't swim. Like, I was legitimately surprised when it first happened. You guys just traversed the road. So maybe you know how how tight it was and stalactites and stalagmites and stuff. But weren't you a little bit surprised at first that the coach who bears responsibility didn't kind of go for it? Like, all right, guys, before it gets too crazy, let me try to make my way out. Well, we don't get any of the journey into the cave beyond next part is the cool part and that's it. We're done. Yeah. It's a flash flood and there's no there's no turning back. It was kind of confounding because they're kicking the ball and I didn't really see a lot of their faces. And I was like, how are we going to care about 13 different dudes all like, you know, before we lose them to the cave? Is it going to keep flashing back to them? Why do I care? And then it kind of didn't matter. And then Ch- and then Kai, the main kid, the, I think he was the little kid with the pink mask, right? Mm-hmm. 
The littlest. They all pull up and he throws his bike down and his bike is the only one on the floor. And like in a weird like Beatles Abbey Road cover kind of way, I was like, what's the symbolism? Is it foreshadowing? Kai's bike has fallen and his is the only one on the ground. (laughs) Oh, no. But man, 13 Lives is what it was about. But it wasn't about these kids. That's for sure. No, it really wasn't. And I understand that Viggo Mortensen's character, Rick Stanton, has to dehumanize them in order to complete the mission. He literally says their packages and then he makes this little conveyance motion with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I get it. That's what you have to do in order to complete this mission. But really, the it's not unlike how the movie treats these, the boy soccer team characters. They really are packages. They are personified stakes that don't really have a human backstory. It's true. But they, were, but they were human. We did spend a lot of time with them and their coach and talking about going home and the birthday celebration and it was very how would you say it Thai you know what I mean I mean they were riding through the rice fields and stuff and and that those were later flooded to aid in their escape but the first 20 minutes was almost entirely in Thai I did know that the one person who lost his life Saman was a Thai diver and I didn't necessarily know that they were international divers and frankly was a little bit concerned that this movie kind of became what I was worried would be a white savior movie. Yeah. You think it became that? Well, I was afraid that it was, that they were going to focus on these dudes and their heroics. And that, I guess, could be construed as the case, but they certainly didn't act heroic. If anything, he was Rick was avoiding the spotlight because of, I can't remember which one it was, but basically they kind of said, we'll get him out. And then if they brought one kid out, then they would have been heroes. But if now when they came so far with the media, if they had lost a kid, then it would have been really bad. Like a single kid Mm -hmm. has to be a complete and total miracle or not at all. And unfortunately, right. you know, Diver lost his life. And did you, and you saw in the card that the another guy also passed away from the blood infection he contracted. Really, yeah. really sad. I mean, just yeah. these kids seemed humble and respectful. And I'm sure that they feel keenly that, sorry, the people who died, they bear some of the responsibility for that, for wandering into the cave. And Kelly kept insisting because I was holding them accountable. Kelly Ray's like, they are kids. It's, you know, they can't help it. They're kids. A couple people died and, you know, 5,000 plus lives were affected. 5,000 plus people were actively trying to get these kids out of the cave. It's a huge operation to further the point of that the movie wasn't necessarily based on the kids, but it also wasn't necessarily a hero story. The heroes were very humble and the heroes were very skilled, but it wasn't like you were saying there weren't heroic antics. But it's definitely a Western perspective of the story, which was an international story and which is a uniquely Thai story. I was grateful that they did highlight the Thai engineer, who I guess was also from Chicago, but was in Bangkok (laughs) at the time, and his ragtag team of volunteers just up on the mountain cutting bamboo into pipes and so I really liked that story there was a real sense of teamwork and camaraderie even though there wasn't a sense of overarching organization amongst the different volunteer teams and I almost wondered if there was this second or third world commentary about operations like this like would this have been a clinical charted out highly controlled operation had this happened in the west I can't imagine. I mean, nobody's planned for these situations. I was shocked that there was, what was it called? The British Cave Rescue Council. (laughs) That exists. 
And I'm hoping <laughs> I'm hoping it was just those two dudes who like came up with business cards or something. Because if that's not the case, then you know, people need to be a bit more careful. Colin Farrell's John Volanthin, as far as I understand, was an IT consultant. He's in his little tie and his tidy little glasses and his little fastidious apartment. And he's a, a cave diver rescuer. Yeah, he's just, yeah, they, they had their cards made up at, at Kinko's or whatever the equivalent was. But he, Colin Farrell said that Viggo Mortensen took the lead and he followed that role. And I, that seems to be the case in real life between Rick and What's-His-Nuts. What was his counterpart's name? Rick and John. Yeah. So I think that Rick definitely took the lead and John was a hero in his own right. He was the dedicated volunteer who had some expertise, at least, and figured that he could carry it out, like, you know, quite literally. John calls Rick and says, are you going to do this? And then Rick plays coy and it's like, oh, you're going to call somebody else. And they're all like flirting with each other and stuff. And they eventually <laughs> get to get to Thailand. But it it was John that initiated it at least according to Ron Howard's interpretation. Like when Rick's like, I'm not going in to die. The flooding's worse and they're deciding whether or not they're going to actually act on the mission. You see John stops and looks at Rick and they all look at Rick and Rick makes that ultimate decision. It adds to the sort of chaotic level where who's in charge? Every time somebody new showed showed up and Joel Edgerton showed up and you're like, okay, well, he's going to play some kind of fairly prominent role. I was surprised in the first place because I didn't know anything about this movie other than its vague premise and that I didn't know that Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen were in it. So when new people started to show up, I was like, oh, man, somebody's going to have a major role. And generally in, in disaster movies like this or rescue movies, one of them is going to die. And it's like, okay, who are they setting up and who's ultimately going to die? To your earlier mm-hmm. point, whether or not this would have been a more organized mission, I can't imagine it was. I imagine it was people who came in with their level of expertise and did a job that they hoped would help in the cumulative that would, you know, get these boys out. Because I don't think they ever had a clear plan <laughs> until they came up with this wacko nuts idea that I never would have signed off on. <laughs> Never. The you, If you were the governor or the mayor, if you were in the mayor's position, you'd be like, no way. Absolutely not. The variable, I can't imagine justifying the variable, the unknown quantity of the sedative and how it would work on 13 different kids and and the coach and, and that one of them wouldn't be allergic, that one of them wouldn't wake up and start struggling and freaking out, you know, because they got the weakest kids out first in real life the ones who needed the most most medical attention, but you take one of the strongest and you test this you know, theory and see if it's even possible. I think they would just all go all day with the plan. I never would have done it. I can see binding the hands and feet, so if they do freak out or have a panic attack, it's fine. But the coach in real life apparently was helpful. There was a lot of criticism levied at him for letting them get in that position in the first place. But he was a monk, like a Buddhist monk, when he was younger, but he was teaching the boys to meditate in the cave. Yeah. Like do the same. I get it. You can't teach them to cave dive because that's that's Rick and Bob's specialty. But you can teach them. Listen, close your eyes the whole time. We're going to bind your hands and feet. The only thing you're going to have to concentrate on is your breathing. You keep breathing. You stay alive and you remain pliable while we pull you through this thing. Seems infinitely better than monitoring their unconsciousness. Um, for three to five hours. Have you oh ever tried? Have you tried me- meditating for 10 minutes is hard. But then when, then he was like, well, you're here because of your specialty. And he's like, what? Like diving? Like what? And they're like, no. Oh, I love sp- that. I love that. Specialty. He was like, 
he was like, I'm way out of my league here. Because He's like it was all so, oblivious. It was so absurd. But then again, this whole movie <sighs> is absurd. They they often said if it was in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. But now they're making a movie about it because I had no idea how terribly harrowing it would be. Everyone on set experienced panic attacks and they were in like little resin caves and stuff and segments. Oh, totally man. freaking out. They said that it's not uncommon for cave divers to have the cuts and scrapes on their knuckles that we saw. And for the first yeah. day, that was makeup. And then after that, they didn't need the makeup. Oh, man. Like, I get it. But I, I mean, I dive. I wear gloves. If you're if you're going through, if you're inching through caves and you're diving five hours, like, why not wear gloves? I guess they they just really needed that tactile sense of being able to hold on to the rope. And here's the most horrible part about this whole thing for me. And mom and dad watched it. It was harrowing. I, I think that Kelly Ray was dreading the stress of them in these tight quarters and stuff and the, uh, the claustrophobia. I've been spelunking in caves and that was tight and freaky and scary. I can't imagine being submerged in water. Like you're a diver and I've done snorkeling and snorkeling in Hawaii was too extreme for me. I had to periodically take off the mask <laughs> and breathe and stuff. But snorkeling, snorkeling in paradise. Right, so visibility <laughs> is limited for sure. And the two guys, they praised the movie for its accuracy except for one critical detail that I cannot get my head around. Rick and John praised the movie except for two critical details? Yes, it was really accurate. You know, it was wonderfully presented and how harrowing it was. And they didn't, you know, it wasn't like a beautiful, glorious diving movie. It was lots of grunting and scraping and, and tight corners and stuff. Except that in real life, the visibility was zero. <gasps> zero. Can you imagine? They were clinking and going around and maybe they could follow the line, but they could see nothing. And as a result, and for cave diving, as they said, it's so much about uh, guiding yourself via tactile measures and stuff. They needed to be able to feel with their hands. And so they don't wear the gloves. And so they were literally feeling these ways, only knowing that there's a direction they need to be generally heading. And maybe it's too cramped to be turned around, but it doesn't make much of a movie, they said, if you if the viewer can't see anything. But that would have been the more realistic depiction. Uh, that would just be a black screen and sound design oh. the entire time. <laughs> so, the one thing they did was to make the water at least somewhat visible. It wasn't pristine, like right. maybe it was in the poster. It was definitely cloudy. It seemed like visibility was maybe, I don't know, a few feet. But at least you could see if you're if you're diving straight for a stalactite. This is like 10 times worse than the Shawshank Redemption. Andy had to crawl through 500 yards of shit-smelling foulness to his freedom. That's, what did it say? The length of five football fields just shy of half a mile. These were mile-long stretches at a time in the dark. And I wrote down initially, the time jumps are a little bit jarring. There's like two hours after they went into the cave. Five hours, two days, five days. And I'm like, man, they are zipping through this. Because when they're going through the cave, even the preliminary dives to find them in the first place, they're like, okay, well, let's get suited and booted. Let's go in. How far is it? And it's like, they're miles of crawling and <laughs> scraping your knuckles in zero visibility. And they did it day after day. Did they really do the extractions like three or four days in a row? 
I'm confident that the time laid out was totally accurate. It's like nine days, guys. You might want to step on it. Like, it's getting worse. And then it's like six days later, and they're sitting around, and the governor is like, no more people dive until we see what the weather does. And it's like, dude, they got to send one emissary with power bars strapped all over his body to get to those kids because they're probably not doing very well. Rick and John are obviously surprised when they find the kids but they're like isn't that the point where you're like damn i wish i brought an apple like (laughs) they had no food on them they were like bye yeah if not them then for yourself yes something did you note that he pops out of the water and he starts sniffing and he's like what's that smell he did they were fully confident they were going to find dead bodies they never answered that. I'm assuming it was waste. Yeah, the kids were, were alive in there, but they were crapping somewhere in there. And he said he could smell the boys when he came up upon them the first time. That was the first indicator that they were close to something. And I have to admit, or I have to guess that it was pooping in the back of the cave, which couldn't have oh, been pleasant. man. Especially when there's like low oxygen and no ventilation when they were like okay so here's where you get to pataya beach or whatever and this is like 3.2 kilometers in i was like what okay it's definitely easier there's got to be shafts the water is getting in there somewhere find the biggest sinkhole or find the biggest inlet and just drill straight like widen that hole the aperture and go straight down right You'll be saving miles. I, I did think that that was going to be the ultimate solution. when they. Yeah. So when they first find the boys and Rick's assessing the situation, he sees, he goes to the cave and he's like, what's this? And then the kids are like, dig, dig, we dig with hands. And he's like, impressed. He nods his head. He says like, good job or something like that. I was thinking, oh, okay. All right. So that's what eventually is going to happen. They're going to find out what's on the other end of way that where they've begun digging and they're going to break through the mountain. <laughs> they themselves, Goonies style, <laughs> and let the pirate ship out. Um, right, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the solution too, but I think he was more just sort of affirming their tenacity and their, their determination to survive. The first 10 days or so of this movie are really frustrating, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be following the story in real time. Like the first 10 to 15 days in this movie, I'm like, what are they doing like do something please it's they're in there for like i guess they just didn't know what to do but i felt like they were really taking their time considering the boys were in there with no food yep as it got longer it got more it got worse because obviously they're so malnourished and they've been in the dark for days this is the uncertainty of are my is my boy alive It seems like as portrayed in the movie, and certainly these are dramatized events, and unfortunately I didn't follow it in real time, it seems like they were really lucky because if the monsoon season had continued, it would have flooded as it said it did for the next eight months if they hadn't had those few days of reprieve to actually affect the rescue. Really insane. And the fact that this is a tourist cave and is pretty much unmonitored, like you'd think that they would have at least a I mean, maybe it's in Thai, but like no flash flood warnings, like national parks and recreation. This tourist attraction is closed due to weather. It's why you can't put responsibility on the coach. It was late. It was it wasn't quite raining, but, uh, you know, it was verging on monsoon season. There was nobody around to be like, hey, don't go in that cave because apparently they had done it. 
This team had, they rode by that cave every day on their way to practice and had been in the cave multiple times. And so it was so casual as to be like, oh, it's birthday. We're going to dip into the cave for a bit. I'm not sure if the place that they ended up was as far as they had gone, but they had gone deep into the cave as a lark on multiple occasions. And the only difference was that the monsoon came when it did. People criticized the coach for allowing them to do this and maybe missing the opportunity to just praise him for going with them. Like, you know, at least as portrayed here, he says, I'll come with you. Like, it's almost like he's looking out for them. And thank goodness he did, because had he not, they definitely wouldn't have survived. And I was so impressed by how obedient they were to their coach, how they really revered him and looked up to him. Like when they're talking about who should go first, the coach says, you know, Kai, which doesn't work out, but they don't argue. Coach says he goes first. He goes first. Regardless of whether he was responsible, he certainly is an unsung hero in this situation. (laughs) I mean, I know know it's not funny, but presented as a Western movie, you can see how if this had happened, like uh, in California or something, how ridiculously different it would have been. Kevin Hart would have been screaming like, hey, I got to get out of here. It's my birthday, motherfucker. (laughs) And like all all belligerent and not at all. Like how many how many American uh, kids would consent to being put under? Uh, Especially if it was in California, it'd be like, I don't know. Talk to my lawyer. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the filmmaking here. So you had ref- filmmaking, including acting. You had referenced Viggo Mortensen actually acting. I think that's interesting. Like to hear more about it. Colin Farrell, too. I felt like he kind of veers into Jared Leto territory for a while where he just wants to be completely transformed or lost in a character or he wants to just play really weird characters. I felt like Colin Farrell was really stripped down, raw, naked and ordinary in this film which for Colin Farrell was like a big departure. I mean, he's played ugly before. Look at the penguin. But I agree. And I, again, wasn't sure how necessary that commitment was. Nobody knew knows who the dude is that he's portraying. He was on a few talk shows and he wrote a book and stuff. But he was like, no, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to wear glasses. And I think Colin Farrell actually does wear glasses. But he changed so much about himself that when I was watching, I was like, holy crap, that's Viggo Mortensen. And Kelly Ray was like, yeah, and that's the other guy who what was his name uh the one who's irish all the time (laughs) colin (laughs) colin farrell yeah that guy and he he took up running which is what bob does in real life i mean that's a commitment john far away from what is necessary for the role he shaved his trademark widow's peak to look more like john and it's like look i get the determination and the dedication to your craft but i'm not sure that it was necessary i think it was just necessary to trans to be someone other than colin farrell to, he, he almost gets lost in the role but not in a buried in the makeup kind of a way or not in a larger than life antique kind of way Like he's just kind of lost in this very normal, nothing kind of role in a way that he is transformative. Yeah, that caused him to have real life panic attacks. Look, if you're going to go methody, learn to control and steal your nerves against cave diving. Yeah, the filmmaking was pretty panic inducing. It was also very procedural, I thought, but it... I think it needed to be because you can't visually track their progress. But it wasn't boring. 
It didn't lose no. my interest. Maybe because it was filmed in such a way that made it harrowing. But the filmmaking just reminded me how happy I was to be in my bed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ron Howard, surprised, maybe not surprisingly, but Ron Howard, of course, the child actor from The Andy Griffith Show, is great at these kinds of movies. He's a very technically skilled filmmaker. And some of his you know, more dramatic movies have kind of fallen through the cracks, but this is his third real-life dramatic rescue-style movie after Everest and Apollo, the amazing Apollo 13 and 13 Lives, all of which are sort of claustrophobic due to the elements. And especially in the case of Apollo 13, I've only seen Everest once, I think, the tight quarters and most especially the technical jargon, the steps that they had to follow in order to affect this rescue in space with almost no power at their disposal. It had to be a technical process. I think mapping this cave and I was at first I was like, oh, that's a little bit weird to put the cave diagram on screen. Mm. And then mm. by the end, I was completely reliant on it. I was like, where mm. are they? And I was relieved when they would come up for breath in the little caverns for a little bit of exposition and to check and see if the freaking kids were still breathing. My God. I couldn't have justified taking non-breathing kid out if you flip him over and he dies. Like, he died Ugh. like four times. Can we not do that with this? Can we not do this with that kid? <laughs> I was also relieved when Chris um, pops up in that one cave and he is like, I don't know where I am. Like, maybe relieved is the wrong word. But I felt like that was a very real moment of bringing the disorientation that comes into a situation like this. Like yeah. he just, he parks his kid, he's gathering himself and partially just waiting for one of his team members to kind of help him out. I was kind of surprised that Joel Edgerton, who's quite a accomplished and at this point well-known actor, kind of played a smaller secondary role to John and to Rick or to Colin Farrell and Viggo Mortensen. But it was his moment in the cave where he takes, he gently takes charge, where Harry gently takes charge of Chris and Chris's charge, his kid. Yeah. That that was a really, really nice moment for Joel Edgerton as an actor. Yeah, he's great in these supporting type roles, strong supporting type roles. But most importantly, Chris and the character of Chris, it's important to note that this wasn't his failing. He wasn't less of a hero, as everyone told him. You know, and in the end, he was hugging families and stuff and, and, and talking with them. But his moment of, I guess, weakness or unsurety didn't play as, oh, man, here's the weak link in the chain. You know what I mean? Everyone has those moments of weakness. He got disoriented and confused, and it wasn't like he was afraid. He just got stuck for a second. And so when Joel Edgerton's character helps him out, I'm going to take the kid, and it's not a reflection of your performance. Brian and I talk a lot about emotionality in films and this idea that kindness is more tear-jerking or emotional than sadness. So when Harry is like, I'll take him, you know, give me a chance to be your hero. Like it was so kind and gentle and exactly what the Chris character needed, but delivered in such a masked, kind way. I was really touched. It's a good thing that we had that character because Rick... The Viggo Mortensen character wasn't going to do it because uh, he was going to be hard, hard nosed. If Aragorn can't get those kids out of the cave, nobody can. I mean, he would have done it the abyss style. Like, let's kill them all and drag them out and see who can, we can resuscitate. Right. Like Ed Harris style. Yeah. Just like, well, we only need one of us. I'll do it. And he'll tie them hand to foot like the human centipede and drag them out all at once. 
Oh my god. So speaking of, so we need to get some kind of resolution for our main character, Rick Stanton. He's at home, he's making coffee, he's alone. What did it mean? Because he wasn't a hero. What did it mean that he looked at the bracelet? He acknowledged the fact that this was something a little bit larger than the technical effort that he made it out to be. He made a decision. He wasn't going to go in. It wasn't grand. He didn't care about the sleeping princess. He didn't want the accolades and he didn't want every the whole town cheering for him. It was an operation that he was best suited. And so, so he saw it as his duty to perform that. And if the governor won't let him in, then he's going to drink coffee. But then he goes back to his normal non-heroic life but then he sees the bracelet i think and realizes okay maybe this was something different maybe this was something a little bit more special because of how important it was to everyone around him uh, even if it wasn't to him i think it was a nice quiet understated moment of a real person who did a, a heroic thing whether or not he i mean he did acknowledge it because both of them individually wrote books and I think Rick's was where the title came from, 13 Lessons for Saving 13 Lives. Hmm. I read the bracelet as, the bracelet to me was a symbol of blessing. What I read into that moment was that somehow his life was blessed by what he had done. Just like he blessed the lives of those kids. I mean, that whole, the bracelet was blessed by the monks and it, it itself was supposed to be a blessing and a good omen going into the caves. He had it with him the whole time. I think it was some kind of acknowledgement of, yeah, he that he had been changed, even if in a, in a subtle way, or that he had been blessed somehow by this experience. And we needed, ultimately, we needed the Rick character. Ultim ultimately, the world, the real world, in real life, we needed a character like Rick to accomplish a task like this. Because that's what it takes to dive for five hours in a pitch black cave day after day after day. And so it's not, he's not a conventional hero, but he's a, he and all of them were these real life heroes that I was really pleased to see put to screen in a very practical way. Now, doesn't, it still doesn't excuse that these white men were portrayed as the heroes for this movie. I hope that we see the Thai version of 13 Lives, and I can only hope that it would be as expertly crafted as it would be by Ron Howard or a Western filmmaking utilizing all the advancements of Western filmmaking technique. But for what it was, and for bringing this story to me, delivering it to me in such a very convenient, tidy, and, and accessible package, was a very entertaining experience. And so, for that reason, I give it a good. I'm glad you got the fuzzy. I, I similarly had, you know, the harrowing experience where it was not a feel-good movie, obviously, but I definitely wanted it to skew more away from hero territory, even than it did. These guys weren't really portrayed as, as heroes in the conventional Western sense. I was glad that they gave gave the tribute to Saman and, and the other uh, diver who, who died later, or the other participant who died later. But it wasn't the grand scale Forrest Gump style, every man is a hero kind of vibe because Harry's dad died and they focused on that. And he was doing his grim duty in the face of that. And Aragorn didn't get his custard creams. And I was like, come on, if nothing else, that dude should get free custard creams for life. I enjoyed it definitely above the line for technical skill and the commitment of the actors for a movie that I you know assumed would be kind of a throwaway thing. Definitely give it an all right. I'm just waiting for the 13 Lives Thai Cave Escape Room right? board game. 
And the Funko Pop figures. Yes, exactly. Because, uh, you know, we're just starting the commercializ- commercialization train for what otherwise is an amazing true story and a pretty darn good film. So that's our discussion on 13 Lives. Ron Howard's 13 Lives available on Prime, Amazon Prime Video. If you enjoyed this episode, hit us up, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we also take movie review requests. So send us the title of the film you'd like for us to review and become a movie friend on Patreon, and we will do just that. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the shit? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.